But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Over the last six months, that's the question that we've been asking of artists around the community, as you've you've heard and probably seen on the way in. Who do you say Jesus is? And the results that came back, as again, you might have seen, have really been quite amazing. Um, Just to give you a snapshot, um, a few of the kind of ways that people have described Jesus, the the healer of our damaged world, the nurturing and nourishing vine, a a, a nurturing light, the, the channel of the reflective, uh, that, or that Jesus is found in the healing forces of therapy, are really kind of interesting and diverse kind of views on who Jesus is. And there's lots, it's kind of worth having a, a slow wander through and kind of reading the descriptions there. Um, because I love the way that it raises that question, who do you say I am? In today's passage, Peter comes to a new real, realization of who Jesus is. Um, we won't be able to get into the details of every verse. We'll spend the majority of the time today in, in that last section between the disciples and Jesus. Um, and in order to do that well, we won't be able to do, spend as much time on the earlier section about the Pharisees and Sadducees. But I'd love if you'd, if you've got questions about them, if you'd come and ask me, or hopefully you've had a chance to kind of engage with them in your small groups this week, if you've been going along to one of those. Uh, but today, as, as we turn to look at that, that last section, we'll see a major turning point in the Gospel of Matthew and a major tension point in the history of the church. This is one, one passage that's been debated again and again, and, and that's why it, it demands a bit more time of us. Um, but, to the t- but to the question, who do you say I am, Jesus first turns to popular opinion. It's helpful to see that um, before Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am, he asked them, what, what do others say? In verse 13 and 14, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. See, Jesus could have told them what is true. So why did he ask his disciples to rehearse false reports about him, instead of simply declaring what is true? I think it was a chance to give them, to, to give them a chance to recognize the cultural assumptions they're up against because they make a big difference to how we approach Jesus. Um, The first half of the chapter, the Pharisees and Sadducees approach Jesus as though he's a prophet that needs to prove himself. They approach him with a stubborn unbelief, given all he's already done. And Jesus warns the disciples, don't let that influence you. It's spread among people like yeast in bread. It it can spread among people like yeast in bread. Um, And now Jesus asks them, who do, who do people say I am? Giving them a chance to, to recognize the cultural assumptions that they, they swim in. Um, that's really interesting to me as, as a kids and youth minister. Um, I think this can be a really helpful question to ask. Identify the cultural assumptions. Um, in some of my kids, I often ask, find myself asking the question, what, what, what are your friends at school? What, what do you think your friends at school would say about that? Because it, whether it's stub- the stubborn unbelief of the Pharisees and Sadducees or something else, being aware of it, Um, is is an important part of being clear on where you differ. And so Jesus first asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then he turns to his disciples and asks, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And in contrast to the popular opinion, we see here um, Jesus according to God. We could ask, who do do the disciples say Jesus is? Who Who does Simon Peter say Jesus is? But even more important than that would be to ask, who does God say Jesus is? 
And verse 17 says, um, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the, my Father in heaven. And so w- these words that we see coming out of the mouth of Simon Peter are, are actually uh, as true as it gets about Jesus. Uh, these are the revelation of God himself. But what, what exactly is it? What, what, what was realized in this moment? Well, Peter here recognizes Jesus to be not just one of the prophets, not, just, not even the greatest among the prophets, but the Messiah. He recognized Jesus as the one climactic figure in God's plan. He sees in him God's purposes finally being fulfilled. Now, did, did Peter f- fully realize who Jesus was? Well, no, the very next story is of him completely misunderstanding what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, but he did understand that Jesus was the Messiah, the climactic figure in God's plan, and that, that's a very significant advance. For Peter, this is a, a key moment in his testimony. He's been called by Jesus, he's left everything to follow him. He's seen Jesus do miracles, turn water to wine, heal many, including his mother-in-law. He's walked on water with Jesus, and, and at that point, Everyone in the boat recognized Jesus to be the Son of God. But now as he's wrestled with it, as he's watched Jesus in the various interactions of the last few chapters, he's finally come to see Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, God's King. I chat to some people who have a kind of, who look back in their lives and have a single definite moment where everything suddenly falls into place. My story of coming to faith is, is much more progressive than that, where again and again I came to see in, in new and fresh light who Jesus was. I wonder how Peter would describe his journey. Because I think it's a bit of both, isn't it? He, he, the, from first laying eyes on Jesus, he, he understands him to be significant. And then he understands Jesus to be the Son of God. Then the penny drops, he recognizes Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But even still, there's, there's more to learn about Jesus. He, he'll come to understand just what it means for him to be the, to be the Messiah as the book goes on. Uh, but it's now, with a good understanding of who Jesus is, that Jesus first directs his disciples towards the church. Jesus gives a great assurance that as the Messiah, he will build his church. And so, so much weight has been put on these verses. Um, but at the same time, it's got to be one of the most misinterpreted passages in the whole of Scripture. We're going to, we kind of moved super, kind of flew over the first 12 verses. We've moved pretty quickly through 13 to 16. We're going to slow right down as we come to this last section um, because it's one that's really, I think, significant historically, significant for us as well, um, but is one of the most misinterpreted passages in the whole of Scripture. You might have seen the, the image of St. Peter at the pearly gates checking names off a list. I don't know if you've kind of seen that kind of picture before. I think I'm most familiar with it from The Simpsons, um, but I'm sure there's kind of higher brow stuff that kind of brings that out. Um, these verses are where that, that kind of idea comes from, but they're not what the, the verses are about. Or on the other hand, you might have seen the Roman Catholic Pope, whose insignia is the, the two keys, the key to bind and the key to loose, which is symbolically passed down through the popes all the way back up the line supposedly to Peter, in this very moment. And so it's really important that, that we're careful with this passage. So, so I hope you'll have your Bibles open. We're going to move slowly, and I hope you'll just notice every detail that we can to, to kind of nut out this passage. And there's kind of three puzzles in particular we're going to nut out. Uh, the rock, the gates, and the keys. Ready to dive in? Let's do it. Um, first, the rock. 
Uh, Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That, you kind of might see there, Peter literally translates to, to rock. It's almost like saying, you are rocky, and on this rock I will build my church. Um, not Rocky Balboa, uh, although I've heard there's been a resurgence. Uh, people are kind of watching those movies again. I don't know what that's about, but um, there's a lot of ink that's been spilt on these verses. More fights than all the Rocky movies put together, I think. Um, on the one hand, Roman Catholics have taken this role as, as, as the rock of the church, as one that's passed down from Jesus to Peter and then to all the subsequent kind of popes right down to Francis today. But many Protestants have pushed in the other direction, finding reasons to argue that when Jesus says this rock, he, he re was really talking about something other than Peter himself. He was talking about building the church on faith like Peter's or talking about building the church on himself, like you are rocky, but and on this rock, myself, I'll build my church. Now, the problem is it's just not how it reads. Um, when he says, you are Peter, rocky and, and on this rock i will build my church it sounds like he's talking about peter uh, and i don't think it's really actually problematic to to believe that let me explain what i mean is peter the one true rock on which the church stands no of course not on christ the solid rock i stand all other ground is sinking sand Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one who builds. Jesus is the one whose church it is. Peter's not the one true rock of the church, and they didn't understand it that way either. Uh, even, I think it's the next, a couple of chapters later, um, they're arguing again about who's the greatest. So if this is some kind of raising up of him to, to some super level, then it's not picked up by them. Um, and Jesus, a couple of later, chapters later as well, is recorded making similar promises to, to the rest of the disciples. Whatever you bind will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. And so the, Peter's not kind of the one rock of the church. But we shouldn't downplay either that, that Peter and the apostles are a really important foundation. Ephesians 2, um, verse 20 is really helpful here. It says, um, describes the church, his household being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. You hear two things there. One, uh, the apostles, including Peter, are a really important foundation for the church, but at the same time, Christ Jesus is set apart as, as the chief cornerstone. They, they don't hold a candle to him. He's a different thing. But still, they're, they're kind of important, right? It, they... Um, it's not talking here about Peter's role as the one on which the church relies. It's speaking about Peter's privileged role, privileged role, along with the apostles, of laying the foundations of the church, of establishing it in Jesus' wake. Uh, so that, that's the rock. Um, Peter, and later on, all the, uh, the other apostles brought into that as well, uh, in establishing the church. The second puzzle we need to nut out is the gates. And Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There's two things to notice here. Um, this has been a kind of favorite of kind of, um, what's the word? Like people who love kind of going to battle. They, they say, on this church, my, uh, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And they kind of picture kind of spiritual forces encroaching on the church. Um, but the... It's interesting to note, if that's the case, that these are gates, not armies. It's not, not armies encroaching on the church that need to be checked, 
but gates slammed shut, locked and barred. It's a picture of a prison rather than a battle. You're closed in, you're locked behind the gates. And that makes sense of the second thing. It's, it's not the gates of demons, or um, the, it's the gates of Hades, which you'll see in your footnotes means the realms of the dead. It's a picture of death threatening to lock down the church. Um, of the other side of death, unable to go on ministering, un- unable to go on working for good. So if this is the gates of death, not about armies of demons, th- then what is Jesus talking about here? Well, I actually think Jesus is anticipating his own death. There were many religious movements in history, and, and most of them lasted not much longer than their leader. Many expected Jesus' death to, to be the end of the Jesus movement. That the Pharisees and Sadducees later kind of got together to organize the death of Jesus. Their hope was to shut down this movement, to make sure that nothing ever came of it. And they thought they'd won. Case closed, gates slammed shut, locked and barred. Until three days later, Jesus broke through the gates of death and sent his Holy Spirit to guide his disciples who laid the foundation of the church and the Jesus movement exploded. The church would not be stopped, nor nor would it be stopped by the death of Peter, the death of the Apostle Paul or of any other Christian leader that followed. Because they're not the ones building the church. Jesus is building the church and continues to build it today. Alive and seated on his throne, it is him who promises to build his church. So, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. If that's about Peter and his foundational role in establishing the church, and if it's about this church which will be so solid that even the gates of death itself will not be able to lock it down, then finally, what, what are the keys to the kingdom? Where does that fit into the picture? Jesus goes on to say, still in Ephesians, give me a second. Um, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, we have to look really closely at the details here. First is to remember what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. We've seen throughout the the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus uses the kingdom language, not to talk about heaven as in the afterlife, but how we live now. The kingdom of heaven is about God's rule among his people. And so this isn't a picture of St. Peter controlling admission to heaven, determining who is good enough or not. We know that it's it's Jesus who comes to judge the living and the dead. Along with that, it's not whoever you bind, but whatever. He's he's judging people, not judging people, but matters. The language of binding and loosing is traditional rabbinic language for permitting and not permitting. Um, I know there's a lot of information, but one more. Finally, look down at the, the footnote at will be says i will give you the keys of the the kingdom Uh, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven the footnote says perhaps a a better translation even though it's kind of awkward in english is will have been it's it's a passive verb there so the best translation is whatever you bind on earth will will have been bound in heaven which i think sets out much more clearly that this is not a matter of divine endorsement as though anything Peter says goes, rather it's a matter of divine guidance, a promise to enable Peter to decide in accordance with what God's already determined. And so what are the keys? They're not keys to the outer gate so that Peter might control admission into heaven. 
the keys to the storehouse so that Peter might make, prov- make appropriate provision for Jesus' church. Now, I know that's way too much information. Probably, I'd, I'd kind of commend you if you managed to hold all that in your head. But um, what I want us to see is to kind of see those details are, are really important and to kind of look really closely at those verses um, is, is a really important thing for us to do. Because if Jesus is saying here that Peter and the apostles are going to establish the church to set the foundations of the church and promise that even death would not shut the church in and that he would guide his disciples in um, establishing it, well, that actually gives us incredibly great confidence. Just to finish off, it gives us confidence in three things. It gives us confidence in the nature of Jesus' church because the church was commissioned by Jesus himself and guided by him. That, that doesn't mean that the church is in a gathering of sinful and broken people. It doesn't mean we should come and expect it to be um, perfect. But it does mean that it, the church was established not on some whim or reaction to Jesus' death, but was, was commissioned by him and guided by him. So it gives us confidence in the nature of Jesus' church. Um, second, it gives us confidence in the future of Jesus' church because the gates of death will not overcome the church. They did not in Jesus, and they will not in those who follow, because Jesus has overcome death. Jesus, death has been defeated, and, and we no longer need to fear it. So we have confidence in the nature of Jesus' church, confidence in the future of Jesus' church, and confidence in the scriptures of Jesus' church. This one kind of takes another step of thinking, that, that, but the New Testament came to us generally by the apostles. So they are the foundation, uh, kind of alongside the prophets, um, and they come... The, the writings of the apostles come with the authority not only of eyewitnesses to, to the accounts, but as those commissioned by Jesus and guided by him, by the Holy Spirit. And so we have great confidence in the nature of the church, the future of the church, and the scriptures of Jesus' church. Uh, but I want to end on the question I started with, which is, who do you say Jesus is? Do you recognize Jesus as the Messiah who will build his church? Do you recognize that what Jesus is doing here has, has been established, has been his plan from the beginning, that he, that he will continue to build, um, whether or not our church grows or, or shrinks, Jesus, will, Jesus' church is, is unstoppable and will continue to grow. And so if, if Jesus is the Messiah of his church, then are you ready to get on board with what he's doing there? I'm going to close in prayer before we sing our final song. Um, praying that we would. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, um, this is your church, these are your people, and we pray that you would um, build your church. Pray that these that we would be nourished today and, and sent out uh, encouraged. And I, I pray that we would rest secure on, on the fact that you have established your church and you will continue to build it um, through the through the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, but ongoingly as as you um, yeah build us up into the um, living temple, which is your church. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.